Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and it is a real honor and privilege to have my next guest on today. Um, I've been trying to get him on for a few months now. He's been so busy, and it's so cool and awesome that he's able to make it on tonight. We're doing a late-night interview. We got we got our coffee. I got my Red Bull, and he's got his coffee, and uh, we're ready to go. So we're both really excited about doing this interview. So um, basically, uh, let me just give you a little information about Daniel Stone. Uh, he uh, earned a Ph.D. in history from Manchester Metropolitan University in England. He's the author of the William Brickerton Forgotten Latter-day Prophet, it came out in 2018 from Signature Books, and he works as a research arch archivist for a private archive in Detroit, Michigan. And here is the beautiful book that you have, and I love this thing. Thanks. And that is the book, everybody, there. So, and I just want to say this. I saw you interviewed on Gospel Tangents with our friend Rick Bennett. And uh, I really, as soon as I watched it, I was like, I got to get this book. I don't know if I bought it right away, but I checked my Amazon history and it was uh, April of 2019 that I bought this book. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I've had it for over two years and I, pro and I read it, you know, that two, two years ago. And, uh, and I, I, and it dawned on me when I was talking to Don Bradley, you know, Don, I, you lost 116 pages author who I'm trying to get on. So I just want you to understand, I bought this book before I even had an idea of doing a book review program. And he's like, Oh really? And I said, you know, just mentioning it to you. It was like, just on me. Like he's you know, I just love this topic. You know what I'm saying? So either way, uh, Daniel, thank you for coming on to the show tonight. Thanks for having me, Steven. I appreciate it. I love your channel and you're doing, you're doing great interviews. So I really appreciate it. I'm honored to, for that you asked me. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, that's awesome. So, you know, before we get in on the interviews, just, you want to just give a little background about yourself, where you're, where you're from and all that? Yeah. Uh, so you told a little bit about like where I went to school, um, grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, most of my life. Now I live in the, like the Metro Detroit area. I've been here for a little over nine years, really like Michigan, uh, miss Florida, uh, but go there often. And I really like Michigan and it's just a fun journey. And yeah, I love doing history and all things I mean, all things history. So it's just, it's just a fun ride. So now you were born and raised in the church of Jesus Christ, correct? Yeah, I was. Okay. And uh, you obviously wrote this book about William Bickerton. And uh, for those of you who are, um, you know, Latter-day Saint or, or, or the community of Christ aren't aware of uh, this, but this William Bickerton is uh, the founding prophet of the church of Jesus Christ. And that is your Pentecostal cousins. Yeah. <laughs> basically <laughs> and uh it's a really wonderful history i i've been fascinated by your church for many many years but i never really could find anything about it until i saw the interview and then i got the book and now i have a good idea of your church now I, and, and we're going to get into some more about your church later on but let's start talking about Sydney. well before we talk about william bickerton what made you decide you wanted to write this book well, just like you said, uh, I loved history growing up. Um, I, the branch I went to, so we call our churches branches, and the branch I went to in Hollywood, Florida, um, there were several elders there that that's what we call our pastors. They uh, were they were really into history, so I kind of grew up under that, and I really liked history. But yeah, like you said, there was really nothing on our church. We had some like you know, we have like church history pamphlets, right? And it's like it's fate what you would call faithful history or what I often call heritage history. It's like this, you know, it's very, it's very nice and very fluffy and it's in that. And there's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but for me, I like the meat. Like I want to know like real life. Cause I, as you get older, you realize like life is not fluffy and 
fairy tales and sunshine it's mixed right it's it's a it's a it's all different shades of gray so I wanted to know like what was the real history and I kept every once in a while hearing about this guy William Bickerton who started our church but like all I knew about him was that he had this like this uh like you would you call like a, vi a vision or a revelation or epiphany however you want to slice it or dice it that he had this vision where he was on the highest mountain on the earth and God told him like listen, if you don't preach my gospel, I'm going to throw you into that chasm below. And he saw this like dreadful chasm. And then he started preaching the gospel and then he kind of broke away from like, you know, the restoration and kind of started his own path within the Latter-day Saint movement or what they call people within the Latter-day Saint movement often call the restoration. And that's all I knew. And that was even kind of this, I mean, it's, it, it, and that's not even really how his revelation, how he tells it, it's in much more pleasant terms. So it's just like, it's all I knew. And I just knew there had to be a better story because the little bits and pieces that I got, I just, you could tell there was something there, but for some reason, the story had never been told and then getting into it and seeing why it was never told and all this stuff. It's just, it was, it just, I mean, literally it was like a treasure trove. It's like national treasure, like digging through it. And it's really, really fun. I mean, it's hard because growing up in a Latter-day Saint church, as I'm sure you've seen with a lot of, uh, when you're interviewing people, it's very precious to people, right? Like, I mean, in history and theology are completely interlinked within the Latter-day Saint movement. I mean, like you have to, because the latter, most Latter-day Saint churches are so focused on priesthood authority. I mean, it's just like the number one thing that people often think about, and it's always in the background. And even though people don't talk about it, you like, once you, once you start getting to the theology, the bare bones of it is always based on priesthood authority. So you have to look to history for that. So you can never get rid of it. So like when you start digging into history and a lot, that's what you see with a lot of, uh, you know, Mormon scholars or people call LDS scholars they have that same issue where, you know, you're finding stuff and you have to like, kind of like go through the, through these weeds to kind of figure out where the priesthood authority is. And so with William Bickerton, I kind of had that same idea of like, okay, how does this work? Right? Like, how does, how do we justify priesthood authority in our church? And even to this day, I have more questions than answers. Like the, what I was taught growing up is not necessarily what I believe anymore. Like I have more, like I said, I, I have more questions than answers on that. And but that's good. Like, that's what life is about, right? It's about the journey. It's about exploring and trying to learn and having different thoughts and opinions. And that's what I like. I always like to try to keep an open mind to see where things go. And I'm not, as for me as a person, I am not like, I, I, like growing up, you, I always kind of believed like the line of like, you know, what you're taught, you know, like, you know, like most people are growing up in your, in, in their churches. They're like, they believe what they're taught and that's the way it is where as I get older and as the more I read, the more I learn, you just get so much more open-minded. The world is so much bigger. And even as a, from a religious standpoint, if I put my religious hat on, God is so much bigger than anything we could possibly imagine. So I, when that's, I basically, long story short, the, the blessing that I got out of writing this book is that it completely opened up my mind to so many different other things, to so many different other religions and to thoughts and beliefs and where does William Bickerton fit within all that from a historical standpoint? And that's what's really been fun because then you start reflecting on your own self and saying, okay, well, where do I fit in all this? So to this day, I really don't know. I have lots of questions, um, not so many answers, but that's good. I think, I think that's the way it should be. People who have too many answers, sometimes I think as I get older, I go, I don't really think that's the way life should be. Because if you have too many answers and not enough questions, then something's wrong.
yeah, that's that's often what I call as a dead ender at that point, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's the pursuit of having that uh, intellectual curiosity about the world. Uh, you know, a lot of people look at me and say, "What are you doing talking to all these Mormons and LDS people?" And it's like, because it's interesting. Yeah. And I love meeting new people, and I love uh, going to different groups and meeting with people and having these interesting, involved conversations with people. It's I find it very fulfilling. And uh, I think I'm, I'm so glad that this book helped helped open that world up for you. Thanks. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I feel the same way. I love talking to other people of other different religions, even out of Christianity, within Christianity. It's, it's fantastic. There's a lot of really cool people out there. And quite frankly, if I, if I put my spiritual hat on again, there's a lot. God does not just move with one group. I mean, God's in everything. So it's really fun to kind of see. I mean... And if, if, as Christians, you know, especially within like the Latter-day Saint movement, you know, there's been this trajectory over time where people believe like, you know, well, we're the one true church, right? Like we're the one group. We're the only ones going to like the highest celestial kingdom or heaven, however you want to slice it or dice it. And it's almost kind of like, I don't know, heaven's going to be a pretty lonely place if it's just us. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't get, I don't believe that anymore. Like, and that's what history has opened up for me. So some people it's like, it's, I've heard horror stories where it's like, it's faith crushing, right? Like, it's like, you know, you, you, it, the, the, everything starts tumbling down. But for me, it was a, it was a blessing. Like, I loved it. I love that the wall that I had of knowledge was completely like blasted with a sledgehammer. And then slowly I got to like, help like piece it back together. And it's, there's still patchworks. I'm still trying to piece it together, but it's fun. I mean, that's like we were saying earlier, that's, that's the whole point of life. Hmm. Yeah, excellent. Well, speaking of life, let's maybe talk about the early life of uh, William Bickerton. Tell, give us some background on the guy. Yeah, sure. So uh, William Bickerton, he was an English immigrant, came to the U.S. in the early 1830s, uh, was, a, was a mid-teenager, which to me, I mean, we don't know much, but like you can just kind of speculate of like, it didn't seem like looking at the ship records on when he came, it looked like he was by himself. I mean, we, we just have so much information. So you just start thinking of your mind of like, oh my gosh, what would it have been like to travel on a, on a, on a boat that most, you know, was not motorized, was sail, it would have taken months to get here. And then you get here, you're a teenager, you're in a completely new country. I mean, he was, an, he was a poor English immigrant. He was a coal miner in England, comes to the U.S., uh, basically ends up in West Virginia and starts, you know, digging coal, something that he knew, and then eventually gets married, uh, has a child, and then eventually moves to the outer Pittsburgh area, most likely because at that time in the early 1840s, Pittsburgh was booming. It was called the Birmingham of America, like the soot and the smoke in the sky was like its hallmark of saying like, this is where, you know, you can make your dreams come true. And as a coal miner with a growing industry, obviously they needed the coal for like the glass works and the iron works and the, and the steel mills, everything. Coal was number one. So he's on these, he's in this little borough called West Elizabeth, which is a part of Elizabeth Township. It's right along the Monongahela River. It's like 15 miles outside of Pittsburgh, give or take. So he's right in the middle of this hub. And this is where he's going to start hearing about the Latter-day Saint movement. He was a Methodist. It just so happened as, like, as he's moving there, this is when a lot of news was coming out about the Mormons, right? The quote unquote Mormons. And Joseph Smith is murdered in cold blood in Carthage. And his first counselor, who he was running for president of the United States, like Sidney Rigdon was his vice presidential running mate. Sidney Rigdon is in Pittsburgh. 
you know, finds out that Joseph Smith is murdered. He goes back to Nauvoo. He loses the debate with Brigham Young. He flees back to Pittsburgh. So all this is being covered in like local news Pittsburgh presses. And it was fun looking at the newspapers just to kind of see of like, okay, my guess is Bickerton would have had to have had read some of this, or at least he would have had to hear of it because he ends up going to see Sidney Rigdon. So somewhere, one way or the other, he's hearing news of this. So where's this news coming from? A lot of it's coming from the newspapers that people are reading and, and the journalists that are writing out there. So it was just so cool to kind of see that, like to, to see the local news of what they were saying in that area about Sidney Rigdon. And it, it's just really interesting. So that's how Bickerton found out about the Latter-day Saint movement. Just real quick, we're, uh, back then there were multiple newspapers in the community, so you had probably yeah. many to many to go. Did you like? You probably had more than enough information on on him. Oh yeah, then. yeah. It's kind of like looking for needles in a haystack, but I did find several. Like you said, smaller local newspapers, and even the Pittsburgh Post Gazette talked about them. I mean, so it was all over, and even local smaller presses talked about them. And it was really interesting because they all have different opinions on Sidney Rigdon. So, I mean, it, it create like we we say to ourselves today like oh my gosh the press is so partisan i mean it's no different the only difference is is we have 24-hour news cycles where back then i mean the, the the presses were so partisan so it was just interesting to see what they're saying about the situation and i'm sure it it created you know controversy and curiosity with people and eventually somehow bickerton found out about it most likely probably even read at least one or, or some of the news stories in his local town about it and just was curious to see let's let me hear this like this great orator that people talk about so he went to go Sidney Rigdon preach and he said that it was the best orator he had ever heard or the best oration he had ever heard and he was convinced like at that meeting that like the rest of like the, the Latter-day Saint movement or the Book of Mormon was true and what Sidney Rigdon was talking about was true and I think as a Methodist he would have he would have been um he would have been open to hearing a lot of these Latter-day Saint ideas, especially because Methodism at this time was just starting to become like a vested organization. You still had like those hints of like charis charisma or charismatic things where like visions or feeling like the emotion of the Holy Spirit come over you where you have like this born again experience. I mean, this is this, this is the bread and butter of the, the, of the early Latter-day Saint movement. This is what Sidney Rigdon would have been talking about and love talking about. So I think as a poor English increment, a immigrant who doesn't really have a whole lot going for him. He's not a U.S. citizen yet. I mean, he's got this family he has to support. I mean, I mean, religion often gives us as human beings like this greater hope of something better, right? And Sidney Riggin was offering him basically what he hears in Methodism, but he's literally, you know, Methodism is slowly moving away from that. And here it's like fresh. It's like Sidney Rigdon is saying, no, you can have this. Like you can have healings. You can speak in tongues. You can do these things. And here's this book, the Bible and Book of Mormon. They both say that this is happening. So Bickerton was very intrigued by that. And he, he jumped on board. Hmm. And so uh, what was his interactions with Sidney like? You know, he doesn't say a whole lot about it. And Sidney Rigdon doesn't really say anything about Bickerton. Bickerton is mentioned a couple times in the Messenger and Advocate, which is Sidney Rigdon's Church of Christ newspaper. Because um, Bickerton very quickly rises up above uh, in the ring. So he gets baptized in June 1845, I believe by the second counselor, John Frazier of, um, of Sidney Rigdon. Or so, but I know it was John Frazier. So, so he gets baptized and then like he very quickly becomes an elder, he becomes a 70, and then he eventually becomes a prophet, priest, and king, which is kind of like, 
the way to the best way to describe it for people who aren't familiar with like what that is like there was a uh there was a council in uh the this uh, the church under joseph smith called the council of 50 and i mean to really sum it up in a nut like a really quick nutshell is basically they're like it's like this group of people that they're trying to organize the kingdom of god before the millennium actually comes it's almost like you're trying to like plan for it and like it says in the book of revelation that you'll they'll be ordained you know priests and kings that's what you know they're basically saying that you're ordained a prophet, priest, and king. Um, Signy Rigdon was considered the same. So Signy Rigdon is kind of continuing this. Uh, he didn't call it the Council of 50. He called it the Grand Council. And William Bickerton was a part of that and was ordained a prophet, priest, and king, just kind of like in the preparation for the upcoming millennium that was coming where Jesus Christ's second coming is going to come. So uh, Bickerton very quickly grew, went up in the ranks and his interactions with Sidney Rigdon early on were really, I mean, you could tell he was very enthusiastic about the church, about especially Sidney Rigdon's Church of Christ. You don't rise up that quickly unless you're enthusiastic, right? Um, the issues quickly, though, Bickerton, so he, he joins in 1845. By late 1845, 1846, Sidney Rigdon wants to go build the New Jerusalem in the Cumberland Valley of Pennsylvania. So he wants to leave Pittsburgh, where his congregation is, which is close to like where Bickerton is for the most part. It's just a qu quick ferry ride down the river or up the river. And then eventually he wants to go to the Cumberland Valley and create this, build this New Jerusalem. And I think this is where you start to see some dissension. You especially see, so Bickerton very quickly in his writings just talks about how he started seeing that Signy Rigdon started going awry. But like in the, in, in, in Signy Rigdon's uh, Messenger and Advocate newspaper, you know, of course it's written by people that are supportive of the church, but there's this one instance where they're getting ready to like move. It's like, it's like one of the last meetings before they go to the Cumberland Valley, it's in Pittsburgh. And Bickerton, they asked the Grand Council or members of the Grand Council, like, what do you guys think of the New Jerusalem? And I think they recorded William Bickerton's response as like, he always felt like the Holy Spirit was guiding him in this church, which was interesting because Bickerton in his own writings was saying that like, he didn't think this was a good thing and that like, he wanted to not do it. And he ended up not doing it, which I just thought it was interesting. That was Bickerton's response when they're trying to get like, hey, does everybody want to do it? So it seems like Bickerton's kind of going with the motions, but he has like this very vague statement and he ends up not going to the Cumberland Valley. And sure enough, Sidney Rigdon's, long story short, Sidney Rigdon's uh, New Jerusalem, it goes defunct, it goes bankrupt very quickly. William Bickerton was against it. And then there was some people, I mean, a lot of people lost a ton of money, lost their livelihood, gave their all to Sidney Rigdon because Sidney Rigdon was even prophesying that like they had, like the widow's might to the thousands people had to give to help, you know, build this Zionic community. And, and when it goes belly up, some people actually went and like seeked like economic and emotional and spiritual like guidance from William Bickerton, who was like a higher authority when they went back to Pittsburgh. And he even talks about that. So you get these little snippets where it's really interesting. You wouldn't necessarily get from like some of the biographies of Sidney Rigdon. Bickerton kind of offers this really nuanced, unique opinion. And you can start kind of start piecing the pieces together when you see it. So really interesting. And that that in a nutshell is Bickerton's interaction with Sidney Rigdon, really great at first, and then slowly kind of moves towards, you know, believing that Sidney Rigdon is going awry and almost like he's become, he, like he's becoming an apostate in some ways. Uh, you know, I, I, Rigdon's such an interesting character, and I got to read more uh, about him, but I'm just wondering, has anybody done a study like what, 
has he kind of ventured a diagnosis? Like, was this guy a schizophrenic? Did he have some kind of imbalance of some kind? Because have people speculated about that at all? Yeah, I mean, Roger, I mean, um, um, Richard Van Wagner wrote this amazing biography published by Signature Books. And he, I mean, let me put it to you this way. It's con- that book is controversial because of that fact of what you're saying. It's It's this form of history where you tried to like, figure out like psychologically what's going on with people you see books written by about hitler like when i went in grad school i read a couple books that were like that where you're trying to psychoanalyze people of history and they're always controversial so richard van wagner's book was excellent in research especially with the dates and the details and what happened but he interprets he basically Sidney rigdon was a manic depressive or like bipolar and that's where people get really controversial with it. And people like don't like Richard Van Wagner's book because of that. Some people do and some people don't. I mean, it's it's an interesting theory. I'll say that. I don't really put my finger on one way or the other, but I love Wagner's book because it is the best book, especially for footnotes, to figure out where the heck do you get information on Sidney Rigdon. He did his due diligence and his homework better than any other Sidney Rigdon biography. There's a couple others out there. They're good but not as good as research, especially with the footnotes as Richard Van Wagner. So, I mean, if you, so regardless, if you agree with psychoanalyzing historians or not, his, his book was just so well done and he does offer an interesting theory. Like I said, I try to keep an open mind about this stuff. I mean, you, there's, there's certain things you just can't explain about Sidney Rigdon and even his own family. This is what's interesting. His own son, in his writings, even talks about John Wycliffe Rigdon even talks about how his father towards the end of his life, he he said this really unique thing. He says, my father seems sane, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, my father seems sane on everything, except when he talked about religion, then he like went, or went off. So even his own family noticed that there was something off by him. My personal theory on Sidney Rigdon from the things I've read is that you know, when they were in Ohio, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, they were attacked by a mob brutally. And I mean, Joseph Smith was beat up horribly. I mean, it was most likely part of the reason why his some of his, his kids had passed away was because it was so cold that day when he got dragged out and beaten. His kids probably got sick and they passed, some of them had passed. And it was really sad. I mean, I mean, it's just tr- very tragic. But Sidney Rigdon, I mean, he almost died. He was on like death's doorstep and he was like, he was like talking out of his mind, but his head was beaten to a pulp. And it just seems like after that, it's just from what I, the little snippets that I read, you see these little episodes of Sidney Rigdon and even Van Wagner talks about that. And I think that's convincing. So whether he was bipolar or not, I don't know, but I don't know. I mean, getting beaten to a pulp with your head like that and almost dying and not having like the medical advances like we do today, it very well could have affected you as time goes on. So, I mean, who really knows, but that's just kind of a thought that I have on him. Is that the portrait of religious excess book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That is. Yeah. I mean, again, like if anybody, I mean, like Jay Burton is doing a lot of really cool research on Sidney Rigdon right now. He works at the church history library in Salt Lake city. He's doing some really cool stuff really interesting things, bringing out some new stuff. He's an archivist there. Um, but uh, as far as I can tell, the best, the best, other than like Jay Burton's newest stuff, the best stuff I've seen on Sidney Rigdon other than Jay's is Van Wagner's because his footnotes are just so good. So basically Zion collapses and uh, the church is a mess now. And these people are coming to uh, Bickerton 
basically lost sheep, if you will, that are looking for a shepherd. Mm -hmm. And so tell me what arises from this. Yeah, so he gets like this small cohort around him, right? And he's kind of caring for them economically, spiritually, emotionally. And he kind of becomes like a leader. So he has this, we don't know exactly how many people are being around him, but we know there's a few. He does talk about that. And eventually you kind of, they're kind of holding meetings on their own, right? Like, so whatever they're doing, I mean, Bickerton still believed that he had this like authority, again, like this priesthood authority, there's that priesthood authority concept. He really believed that like he had the Holy Spirit power with him and he was holding meetings. But you know what? Like Sidney Rigdon, one of the really interesting things about Sidney Rigdon reading the early newspapers is how much he bashed Brigham Young. <laughs> like, I mean, it was like bashing Brigham Young one thing after another, after another, e almost like every single new, I, I think almost if not every single issue, there's something against Brigham Young. And even Joseph Smith, Signey Rigdon later on is even in talking about in The Messenger and Advocate how Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. He basically like let the secret out. And that was part of the reason when he, when he lost the debate in Nauvoo, he basically said like, I'm going to like report this. And he does talk about it in newspaper, how Joseph Smith started it. It was, it was propelled forward by Brigham Young and he's just lambasting it. Right. Well, then he goes, I mean, he goes awry very quickly and he goes belly up and the church basically goes defunct and Sidney Rigdon, according to some reports or according to one report, basically like as he's leaving his bankrupt congregation is going to New York to go like live with his like, you know, son-in-law and daughter basically says reportedly, you know, I'm going to hell on a thousand years mission and then leaves. I mean, he just leaves his congregation. So, I mean, just imagine yourself like in the, I try to, you try to put yourself as much as you can in these historical subjects you're writing about. You hear the, you hear these stories about Sidney Rigdon completely leaves his congregation belly up and he heard all these terrible things about Brigham Young, but what's happening with Brigham Young? He's prospering in the West. I mean, literally, it's the greatest, regardless of what people say about Brigham Young, whether you hate him, love him, you're somewhere in the middle. I honestly respect the man as the greatest American pioneer ever. I mean, he moved thousands of people across the desert fueled by religion and literally created a, a, a very prosperous city in the middle of a desert oasis and created like this oasis. So, I mean, it's an amazing story. So Bickerton obviously is hearing about this. So he gives a thought to look at Brigham Young to say like, okay, well, Sidney Rigdon went bully up. I heard all these terrible things about how he's practicing polygamy. Let me like look into it. And he writes a letter in the early 1850s to he writes it to Canesville, Iowa, which was like winter quarters right across the river. And it's just kind of like, it was like the one last stop before you basically have to do Pony Express to like Salt Lake City. So it makes sense that he writes it there to basically ask for more information about the church. And eventually you have two elders, John Murray and David James Ross, who are doing a mission in the East. They go to visit, meet Bickerton in his small little congregation or his small cohort in uh, West Elizabeth, Pennsylvania. And they go over, you know, differences, differences and, you know, beliefs and opinions. We don't know a lot about what they're talking about, but we do know this. Sidney Rigdon was very adamant that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young practiced polygamy. It's all throughout the news, his newspapers. This is what Bickerton would have believed. But the, the public story that's going on in the United States at the time, especially that the church is saying, is that they are not practicing polygamy. So there's a lot of similarities between Sidney Rigdon and Brigham Young's churches. I mean, you're really splitting hairs on a lot of things. The theology would have been very similar. 
I mean, both believed in baptism for the dead, right? Sidney Rigdon believed in that. Brigham Young believed in that. The plurality of gods, eh, probably not. Sidney Rigdon wouldn't have believed in that, most likely. I mean, Bickerton might have heard hints of it, but he might have at least, like, maybe given the concept some idea to it. We don't really know. I mean, but that would have been something that might not have been such a big deal to talk about, right? But there's a lot of similarities. The theology is basically the same other than those other things. But the one thing that for sure Bickerton was going to ask these missionaries was, are you guys practicing polygamy? The missionaries tell him no. And that's the public stance. So Bickerton believes that they're not practicing polygamy. It's all a bunch of rumors, which is what he thought. He thought Sidney Rigdon must have just been lying. Well, eventually, like William Bickerton becomes the presiding elder eventually of this West Elizabeth branch that is of the LDS church that is formed there. And eventually, when you get to 1852, this is when 1851, 1852 out in the West, this is when Brigham Young and his and the, and the 12 are talking about oh, like, okay, we need to like publicly come out and say that we've been practicing polygamy. And they're planning for this. And what's really interesting, again, this is the really cool thing about William Pickerton that a lot of other scholarship about, uh, you know, Mormonism doesn't really get to go into is that, you know, it's all focusing on like what's going on at the top with Brigham Young. But we don't really know what, how, how are you preparing these branches out in the East that have no idea, like, like the West would have been hearing more rumors about it than they would have been in the East other than just what's going on in the newspapers. And there are some newspapers that were talking about polygamy out West. But I mean, it's so what's interesting is that we actually hear from William Bickerton that they were actually, the West was sending out missionaries from the West to the East to prepare the Eastern branches for this announcement. And they were only preparing like the, the ministry. And they basically had this meeting in um, Allegheny City which is now like the north side of Pittsburgh. And they basically Bickerton is called to this meeting. And there's these people that are from the, that are basically, you know, told the news from the West and to prepare the ministry saying, okay, guys, like heads up, you know, there's this announcement coming out that polygamy is good, that we're practicing polygamy and you either have to accept it or you have to like, or you're basically receive like the condemnation of God. And William Bickerton at this time, probably you can only imagine is probably, like beside himself and floored because he asked to their face, are you guys practicing polygamy? He's told no. And then all of a sudden it comes back. Sidney Rigdon was right, right? I mean, all these things that he had been told earlier are now true and now it's publicly coming out. So he's, for the lack of better words, he's pissed. So he, he stands up in the middle of the congregation and he says, according to like, you know, some of the, some of the, the writings, it basically so along the line says like, if the approval of God were to come to me by accepting the doctrine of polygamy, I would prefer the displeasure of God. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those stories that have been passed down over time, but it likely seems true because in Bickerton's writings, that's like the one thing he lambasts all the time is Brigham Young and polygamy constantly. He uses some of his strongest language for that. So it, it most likely is true that something like that had happened and he just storms out of the meeting and that's it. That's his affiliation with the LDS church. He's gone. And we don't really know what happens with his LDS congregation right away. So what's interesting is in the minutes of, of, of the church, or really the LDS church that are in the possession of the, of, um, of the church or in, in the possession of John Mancini, or actually the, that, that book is in the possession of the church, I believe. Yeah, John Mancini has copies of that early, of that early stuff. But anyways, it's in the possession of both archives. Basically, he, William Bickerton writes this like message to his congregation and basically says like, okay, 
you know, like we, the undersigned have like, have agreed to basically separate ourselves from the adultery of, you know, Brigham Young or whatever, but there's no signatures below that. So you have to speculate like, okay, you wrote, you write this in the official book. Nobody signs it. Why? Well, because the official announcement hasn't come out yet. This is like around March of 1852. The official announcement doesn't come out till later. I think that fall of that year or the summer, summer or fall of that year. So you, it makes you speculate and wonder like, did they not sign it because they wanted to wait and have like a wait and see approach to see like, is this announcement really going to come out? Eventually we do know that eventually his con most of the congregants that were in West Elizabeth do follow William Bickerton, that he was telling the truth. But you could tell, like, there's this struggle. Like, William Bickerton has this hot news that he's getting before the public announcement, and he's pissed. And that's where he ends up, like, being a left alone is what he likes to say. So at this time, is his congregation meet, still meeting every Sunday after he told them this, or did they just uh, just... I mean, what was going on at that point? We don't know. We okay. don't know. There's only there's only so many minutes that talk about it. eventually they do start meeting regularly. We do okay. know that. But Bickerton does say in his writings that he was left alone. And that's where I really take him seriously. So that he writes this thing, right? Like nobody signs it. And he's saying that he's all by himself. Now, how by himself is he? I don't know, but I'm assuming he probably is pretty much by himself. And he's kind of like really trying to figure out what the heck is he going to do? But he said that he felt like, again, that he believed in the Book of Mormon. He believed in this movement, which, by the way, blows me away. I'm going to be honest with you. If I said if I had tried to follow two people, I might be questioning everything. But he really still believed in the Book of Mormon, still believed in his calling. And this is when he starts really do some serious soul searching. And this is when he's this is when he has his vision. And this is when he has his vision in around 1852 of the vision of the mountain and chasm. And I really like this vision. It is a very nice vision. It's not like this vision where like God's like yelling at him being like, if you don't do this, like you're going to get thrown into this chasm. It's like, no, he literally says he was put on the highest mountain on the earth. And he said that God basically very nicely told him like, you're, you're like, you're in a good place. Like keep doing what you're doing. But like, if you, don't do this. The words that he said that God told him though, is he was going to fall into the chasm. That's very different than being thrown into the chasm, right? Like, and that's kind of what you, the, over, you know, the heritage history of what I've been told over the years passed down. I mean, to fall into a chasm is much more different. I mean, God's literally putting him on the highest mountain telling him, this is where I see you. And if you continue on this path, you'll stay here. But if you don't, you're going to fall into the chasm. And that's dreadful. So it was actually like a really nice vision other than seeing like what was below in the chasm. He said the site was awful. So he that's where he then knows like, okay, I'm going to preach the gospel as I see it. And this is where he starts having to reevaluate theology and everything like, and this is when he starts like figuring out like, okay, what am I going to keep from, you know, hearing from Sidney Rigdon and Brigham Young? What am I going to get rid of? And this is where you really see an uneducated English immigrant who's very, Willie Bickerton was a very smart man. Like he wasn't, he wasn't maybe educated, uh, like, you know, professionally, but he was a very brilliant and a very uh, tactful man who was able to figure out, okay, what do I believe? What do I not believe? He was an avid reader and he was able to figure out like, okay, and lead a congregation that would eventually grow. And this is what's fascinating is that now worldwide, the Church of Jesus Christ, Bickertonite, is now like the third largest Latter-day Saint church last time I checked. I mean, you think about that. 
Billy Bickerton has no direct connection to Joseph Smith. Most other congregations have some type of connection, whether it's through Joseph Smith's family or Brigham Young, and then you do the line. I mean, he has this really short, maybe 10-month stint with Signe Rigdon. He has about the same with Brigham Young, 10 months, and then he's on his own, and he's doing his own thing, and now his church is still here, which is pretty cool. I mean, how is how it happened? Who knows? But it's pretty. it's a pretty neat story. So let's just talk a little bit the process now of this church becoming the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, this is in the 18, so we basically have a 10-year period from 1852 to 1862 when, when it's formally organized. Maybe give us some highlights of what that process looked like. Yeah, so the church, I always like to say that as my church, I always have fun with this with people just for fun. So like our church, my church always says like, oh, we were or we were founded in 1862 or whatever. I say 1852 because that's when really it starts. 1862 comes from it's basically when the 12 the, the 12 apostles or 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 ordained and it like becomes officially organized is what they call it. But 10 years earlier, the church had existed. There was elders, there was priests, there was deacons. Um, there were teachers. So you really, and you're having several congregations starting to develop around the Pittsburgh area. So it's becoming a church. And then by, yeah, 1862, you have the 12 that are, uh, that are ordained, the first 12. And then 1865, the church is like officially incorporated in Pittsburgh. So, and then like, and then it starts continuously progressing from there on out. Why didn't they ever get tied in with our, the RLDS and Joseph Smith III. So they had they had met missionaries of the RLDS. They even had like a um, I talk about this in the book a little bit where they actually sent out missionaries to some of the RLDS congregations. So there were interactions and some interactions, vice versa. RLDS are coming to meet them, but like they had a lot in common. But they Bickerton's group was very focused on like gifts of the spirit. I mean, there's tongues and prophecy and visions like galore in the, in, in all the church writings, especially the minutes. I mean, usually you think of minutes as pretty dry. Bickertonite minutes, early minutes are not dry at all. They're dry in some parts, but like you're always seeing experiences and they even had, they even started record, recording this revelation book, they called it. And they actually said it was supposed to kind of be like the doctrine and covenants of the church. They said as, they basically say where Joseph and Hiram fell, like we're going to pick up like the mantle. So they're basically trying to create their own version of the doctrine and covenants, not necessarily maybe in the same light, but it's like to record the, the, the accepted revelations of the church. So that way they could have it as kind of like a guide, because you have to understand William Bickerton really believes that Jesus Christ's second coming is imminent. So to have these revelations right here in front of you, where you could flip through them to see, to kind of how almost have like a map or a guide to know like what you're supposed to do. I think that was really important. And that's kind of what the doctrine of covenants were for too. I mean, it's the same type of mentality. So Bickerton is, he's really a Latter-day Saint leader. He's having these same types of ideas. So right around the time that the church is formally starting to organize, of course, we have the Civil War going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, William was very much into the Civil War prophecy that Joseph gave. So yeah. he's so we're, we're talking about he believes the imminent return of Christ. We have the Civil War prophecy. And I want to tie in that he also feels it's very important that they, they start um, missionizing the uh, Lamanites. Yeah. So let's just kind of bring all that together. 
Okay, sounds good. Yeah, so this is, I mean, and what's cool is that, like, so Bickerton's out in the East, right? So, like, he, I mean, Pittsburgh is this booming town that is fighting for the Union, right? Like, the foundries, the factories are just exploding. So, like, he he's, wor- every, he's working a lot. He's seeing a lot of this, like, what's going on. There's, like, even these, like, you know, Lincoln even comes to give a speech in Pittsburgh. I mean, it's a hotbed. I mean, it's, it's a hotbed for the Union. So Bickerton is, like, in the middle of this. And he sees the Civil War as, like, the cataclysmic destruction that's talked about in the Book of Mormon. So when you get into – it's in other parts of the Book of Mormon, but it's very prominent in Third Nephi where Jesus talks about, like, this great destruction that's going to come upon the land of America or the Americas. But they're seeing it as, like, America, like the United States. And the, the Civil War to this day was the bloodiest American war. I mean, I can only imagine like the thousands of people that are dying a day. It's so gruesome because and what makes the Civil War so gruesome from a historical perspective is you're having this increase of technology with old war tactics. So as one of my old professors, when I would talk to him about the Civil War, he, he said, like jokingly says, I'm always asked like, well, who was the greatest American general during the Civil War? None of them, because all of them use old war tactics with new technology, especially like machine guns were starting to be developed. So the, the carnage would have been absolutely massive. So Bickerton believing that this was like the apocalypse or like the, the destruction that was coming before, like the ultimate destruction that was going to encompass the whole earth, which Joseph Smith's Civil War proxy talks about. I mean, you could see why he would believe that. And Cindy Rigdon talked about Joseph Smith's prophecy, Civil War prophecy, even within his Messenger and Advocate. He basically paraphrases it. And Joseph Smith's Civil War prophecy is very, very interesting and really explains a lot of the millennialist beliefs of early Latter-day Saints, not just within the Bickertonite movement, but within other movements, especially when you get into the LDS history, seeing Brigham Young's like sermons or some of the other upper echelons of the church talking about their sermons of the Civil War. I mean, it's just so much in there. There, I mean, and Joseph Smith very, I mean, it's pretty amazing. So Joseph Smith has this prophecy of this, I thought you don't mind me talking about the Civil War prophecy. He has this prophecy in 1832. This is during the time of the nullification crisis in the United States, right? This is when this is when the South is kind of playing with these ideas of like, well, we can nullify federal laws, like we don't have to follow them. In South Carolina, the you know the the rambunctious state that it is 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 like saying like we don't have to follow these federal laws, and they didn't like the tariffs that the federal government was import was putting on like some like things like cotton and things like that, and that got them mad because they had these deals with England that they could have cheap cotton they would they would export cheap cotton to england and in return they would get cheap textiles that they could then clothe their slaves with so i mean it's all it's all economics right it's all based on the almighty dollar they're trying to make money and now that they're the federal government's raising tariffs south carolina is pissed and is like no we're not gonna have to follow these laws and that's when andrew jackson basically threatens to send the federal troops to south carolina says no you need to follow these laws or else so all this is going on, and as this is happening, Joseph Smith around this time has this prophecy, and he literally says in the prophecy, he's speaking like in the word of the Lord or like speaking like a prophet, like like for God, like God is speaking through him, and basically says South Carolina is going to secede from the Union. I mean, it actually says that, and then it says the like, and then basically says like, and then like this great war will envelop, and then eventually the, the war will envelop the whole earth. And then it says that slaves will rise up against their masters. And it talks about like the Native Americans or the American Indians are going to write. I think it's called the word I think he uses is the remnants of the land, which he's talking about the Native Americans, that they're going to rise up and they're going to attack. And then so 
when you read Brigham Young's sermons or you're seeing Bickerton's sermons or you're seeing other people's sermons like Sidney Rigdon, they're often looking to the Civil War prophecy. So it's just a part of the, because people often say in Latter-day Saint history, they say, well, the Civil War prophecy wasn't, you know, canonized until like, you know, later on in the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah, but that doesn't mean people weren't talking about it. They had copies, trust me. I mean, because Joseph Smith's Civil War prophecy was like published, like people had it. Sidney Rigdon's talking about it in his own newspaper in the 1840s. I mean, it was a part of the dialogue and their sermons are deeply talking about it. So Bickerton's believing this too. So he thinks the civil war is the, like the, almost like the, the spark that's going to basically ignite the powder keg that's going to develop the, the, the whole earth. And it makes sense because it even talks about how like, it's a Joseph Smith civil war prophecy even talks about how like they're going to like look to, to like England and to other countries for help. And that's kind of what happens, right? Like, it, so you kind of see in their minds of like, okay, well, England's going to eventually get involved and all this, that doesn't happen. But like, you can see in their minds of like, this is going to be a domino effect. So Bickerton is very, very adamant that this is the civil war is the proof that the apocalypse is coming. This is just the beginning and they need to preach to the Native Americans. They need to get them out to them because they're the seed of Joseph. Bickerton was very, very much focused on like, he felt like the Native Americans, if you could convert them or show them the Book of Mormon, that would be almost be like the key that would unlock Zion. And I think that Joseph Smith early on had that idea about the Native Americans, but it very much quickly kind of fell flat. He sends Oliver Cowdery and some others out to kind of preach into the West. And at that time, the like the border between like the United States or, or like the developed United States in the West was like Missouri, right? In Independence, Missouri. But as Bickerton's time, he basically tries to pick up with Joseph, where Joseph Smith left off. And at that time, the Western area is like, like St. John, Kansas, like the Kansas area. So he eventually wants to create like this colony, which they do. For the whole purpose is like this hub so they can go constantly preach to the Native Americans. They're looking for this Native American prophet called Joseph. He's supposed to be called the Choiceer. He's going to kind of lead the Native Americans and they're going to basically kind of like create Zion and build the new Jerusalem while all of America and the world is collapsing and everyone's going to come to their hub to save them. I mean, it is a fascinating story. So yeah, Bickerton is very much a millennialist prophet. He's very much a pre-millennialist prophet, believes Jesus Christ is coming down to initiate the millennium and he's got to get his people ready. Like it's happening. <laughs> so, well, we've got, a, we, we're in Kansas now. That's a good place to continue this conversation because this actually, uh, he, it was very important to him that the, they not only moved to uh, Kansas, but they actually also to move the church headquarters to Kansas. That was going to be the key thing, but this is kind of the beginning of some issues within the church yeah. where we're starting to see some things develop. So maybe talk about where, what, what the coming rifts are going to be about. Yeah. There, so the church early on, it's amazing to me, first of all, that I'll say this kind of like on a personal note, it's amazing to me that like these people that mostly are coal miners and shopkeepers in Pittsburgh, they're mostly not farmers, have the guff to like move out west and to create a colony. And they really struggled the first year. I mean, some of them almost died. They had to burn buffalo chips, which is basically buffalo. I mean, it is, it's buffalo poop. Like they had to burn buffalo poop in the winter to stay to stay warm. And But I mean, they succeed. They actually create a colony. Well, what's interesting is that the church, you had people in the East that really thought that, that maybe this wasn't a good idea. At first, they might have thought it was a good idea, and then they didn't. So you have people like Benjamin Metacroft and John Meesh who are basically throwing, like, eventually, 
like or John Nish never necessarily agreed with it. Benjamin Metacroft is kind of flipping, flip-flopping, but long story short, the church sabotages itself. There are member, high members in the East that eventually go out there, report back to the East, things that aren't, according to, to the Western records, aren't necessarily true. They actually were doing pretty well. And they're actually kind of, kind of creating like a communal society in St. John, Kansas, almost like trying to share things, kind of like what you see in the book of Acts. And they're kind of trying to follow like the order of Enoch a little bit, kind of like in the early uh, Latter-day Saint movement, very similar. They're, they're tweaking things here and there. They have like a communal storehouse. You have to give so much of your goods to the communal storehouse so you can divvy it out to people. So they're really trying to do that. And Bickerton talks about that so they could live all in common. But the church sabotages itself. I mean, you have these people, like I said, that basically report, they go out to the West to report on what's going on. They report misinformation to the East. The East basically cuts off like funding to the West, which is what they needed because it was still a very fledgling community in the West. And very quickly, it's just, it starts getting really bad. And they start, the members in the West are really starting to lose money. There's losing of hope. But what the saving grace of St. John, Kansas was, is that it was a prosperous little colony, and it was not too far from another city called Great Bend, which has a railroad that's going through there. So people from other parts of the United States are now moving there, and they're actually hearing about St. John. I think even St. John's, like some of its like crops were like, like displayed during the centennial of the United States. So like, I mean, it just goes, I mean, for Kansas, like this, the state, like the little booth that they are not probably a little booth, but the booth they have there, some even stuff from St. John is being, which they called Zion Valley back then. It was called Zion Valley that eventually becomes St. John. Some like some of their crops and goods from Zion Valley are being shown at the centennial, you know, booth for Kansas. That's pretty cool. Like, so people are moving to Zion Valley It eventually becomes St. John. The reason they called it St. John was because they were hoping to get to the good graces of the governor so they could get, become the, or, or it was the governor or the county. I have to look, but, but basically they tried to become the county seat and they're trying to like have the good graces by naming it St. John after the guy, the politician. And I mean, in the end, it just becomes, it just becomes like a merger. So the church created this colony that very early on, you see some people even writing saying like, we're not sure about these Mormons that are coming here because they heard about like the rumors of like, because, and that's what's a unique thing about the Bicker Tonight Church too, is I have to say from everything that I had read, I'm not like trying to like say like, oh, because I, I look, try, like try to find, like if there's controversy, if there's fight infighting with people that are residents there, you would want to see about it. The Bickertonite group, for the most part, really got along well with their neighbors. Like they weren't the they weren't the the, the normal Mormons. Like they were kind of like oh, like they they got along with their neighbors. So the neighbors just eventually moved in there. They very peacefully lived with them for the most part, and they kind of just intermingled with the people that were moving out west. So that that's kind of what saved the colony was that people just started migrating there and Bickerton eventually just kind of says okay well this is just supposed to be a spiritual hub anyways it was supposed to be in in all essence the St. John was really supposed to be kind of like the hub where like eventually like this great like gathering would begin because it was the they kept calling it the gathering place this was the place where things were supposed to start gathering and then eventually they would build the new jerusalem but it doesn't really necessarily turn out that way so bickerton's kind of like all right well we still can preach to the native americans we're, we're still on the western edge so let's go do that and that's where he's constantly trying to do that the next controversy comes in is partly Bickerton's fault, partly other people's fault. It was just a hot mess of a soap opera. Super interesting. 
Um, basically, Bickerton is accused of adultery. Bickerton is adamantly against polygamy, right? So then it makes you wonder, okay, like, was like, you know, most other people, as you well know, a lot of people in modern day Saint history say they're against polygamy. Like James Strang said he was against polygamy. So did Joseph Smith. So did Brigham Young. And all of a sudden, hey, we're, we're practicing polygamy. So it makes you wonder, was Bickerton practicing polygamy? And the more you looked at it, it was not that at all. The best thing that you can come up with, Gary Entz, who is another PhD historian, looked deeply into it. I looked off his research and I had more documents, so I was able to look even deeper. And I basically come to the same conclusions as Gary or Dr. Gary Entz is that like in the end, Bickerton has this relationship with this woman called Trifina Taylor. She is in her 20s. Bickerton is in his 60s. She's married there is this moment in their in Trifina's life where she's healed, where basically she's on death's doorstep. She's on her bed. She's basically having saying goodbye to her friends and family. And Bickerton is distraught. I guess he was friends with the family. He was, he was, he was uh, friends with James Taylor, her husband as well, not the musician, but yeah. But anyway, so James Taylor, and he goes out to the Creek when Trifina's on her deathbed and is like, you know, basically praying to God. And I guess he has like this revelation where God tells him like, just go back in there and tell her in the name of Jesus Christ, like you're healed. He goes back in there, does it, she's healed. And it wasn't too long after that, that then you start to see the accusations from James saying that his wife and Bickerton are like getting a little too close. So it makes you wonder, Gary first, Gary Entz first thought this, it kind of, it's a good speculation. It kind of seems that they was a close friendship. And even, and even when you're seeing like the council minutes, you could tell like they were friends. They grew, they were around each other. They were in the community together. They were, a, it was a friendship that was being split apart because there was this close connection between a six-year-old man and a 20-year-old woman. And basically the the count the first council meeting that goes over this they basically say okay okay like bickerton like william bickerton and them like it just seems like he's treating her like a sister in the church the idea is that like nothing's going on like they're just friends but like let's just be on the down low and let's like things cool off and things do cool off bickerton even invites james and trifina to go on a missionary trip not long after that council meeting so you could even see like bickerton is trying to kind of like patch things up with his old buds right well, it wasn't too long after that that James again accuses Bickerton and Trifina of having an affair. But this time, James really goes out of his way to like bring it to the public and not get, get like, not like, you know, basically like to throw the dirty laundry, not even just in the church among like some people, but like not outside the church to the public. And it becomes like this big event because Bickerton's kind of like the, like the godfather of like St. John, right? Like he's the original pioneer there. So people love him, like him. They call him Uncle Billy. So like he he's a beloved guy. So it gets out there and it really, it really causes problems. And Trifina, what's interesting is Trifina basically says you get little glimpses of Trifina because unfortunately, like a lot of minutes, Bickerton night minutes are cool because you see a lot of women prophesying and those things are recorded, but you often don't see and sometimes women's comments are recorded and when they say things in the word of the Lord, but oftentimes like most things, it's mostly men, right? But you do see glimmers of Trifina and she's actually saying in these meetings, like, we're not, I'm not an adulterer. Like I'm not having an affair with Bickerton and Bickerton's saying the same thing. 
But it's kind of scandalous because he has this council meeting. He probably is still having this close friendship with Trifina. James is jealous. He knows James is jealous, but yet he's still, I guess, having this friendship. But it probably stems from this idea that she was healed by Bickerton. And that kind of seems like that close friendship never seems to go away after that happens. And you can see this really bothers James. So eventually what ends up happening is that it explodes. Bickerton's wife, for the record, is out in the East too. So that makes it kind of scandalous because his wife's not even there. So there's this older guy, you know, maybe getting a little too close to this younger woman. I don't know. I tend, long story short, I personally believe that there was no adultery. I think Bickerton definitely, for that time, a man of his stature in the community to have a close friendship with a woman, a married woman, it's taboo no matter where you go. Um, but like, I think Bickerton, he kind of got in trouble for this before. Like he often had close relationships. He actually got in trouble for this a few years earlier. And when he was living in Pennsylvania, he had a, uh, I don't know if he was living there or he was visiting there. Either way, he was in Pennsylvania and there was a deaconess, which is an ordained office in the church. And there was a deaconess that was having some issue. We don't know what the issue is, but a court, but there's a council meeting where Bickerton's getting in trouble because he has, got like in our in our nat our, our modern day standards this sounds ridiculous but he met this married deaconess in a public park to have a private conversation with her and oh my goodness they had to have a council meeting about that and eventually they basically were like okay nothing's going on so Bickerton has gotten in trouble for this before he he seems very freely to talk to married women especially if they're like a, if they're an ordained officer and Trifina is a deaconess in the church as well so it seems like he can he just feels like he can have close friendships with women and men so he, I guess in some respects Bickerton's a little more modern for his time but so yeah so anyways this happens i don't think there was any adultery long story short looking into it there's like no evidence of it whatsoever trifina is against it bickerton's against it james keeps touting it he's pissed like he's throwing it out there her name is getting run through the mud and back then i want just i want the viewers to understand a woman in 19th century america especially in a small little town like that they have very little rights to begin with, right? They're very dependent on their husbands. And her name is being run through the mud by a man she's living with is, and is completely economically dependent upon. So this is horrifying for her, not only within her church, within her community. And it blows up with Bickerton. And they were supposed to have like this conference, like you were saying, this was becoming... This was like the hub of the church. This was like the new headquarters and they were going to have a conference there. And then there's this, there's this apostle William Cadman that comes over to kind of figure things out. He ends up siding with James Taylor. It explodes even more. William Cadman even decides that he's going to put the final nail on the coffin and he's going to have a public trial in St. John to try to accuse Bickerton of adultery in Trifina, which is like, I mean, I just, it's like a soap opera. It's unbelievable. And they're like talking about this in the newspapers, the newspaper accounts. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. Cause I mean, this is a, like a real life situation. This was horrifying for people, but this is over a hundred years. So I guess we can laugh a little bit about it, but it's like, like the people in the newspapers are like, this is the, like, they're like, this is the most scandalous and most out, like the most interesting thing that's ever happened in the town. Like, it's like a big soap opera. So everybody's interested. And William Cadman, creates this whole thing, basically tells Bickerton like, okay, you should come. But they already have, by the way, they already have a church meeting. They have two separate church meetings. One Bickerton side where people like side with Bickerton basically say they, they try to still conduct the conference. 
Cadman and James Taylor and their group that believes that there's adult this adultery happening, they're basically trying to figure out how to like get oust Bickerton. And they're trying to figure out how to clean up this whole mess. Trifina is on the side of Bickerton. I mean, it's just like, and James and Trifina are still married. Could you imagine like they're going to the meetings in the afternoon at night and then they go home later that night together. It's like, it's like, it's crazy. So eventually they have this, um, they have, so basically Cadman tries to have this public meeting. He invites the whole community to come. They're going to be the jury. No church members are going to be the jury. The community is going to be the is going to be the jury, but the church members can be in the audience. And he gives like these uh, this hours long, like, like, like basically like um, prosecution against Bickerton and Bickerton. He invites Bickerton, even though they've already excommunicated Bickerton in their meeting and Bickerton's trying to conduct business in his meeting just to go on without. And they basically have this like, again, hours long prosecution. Bickerton obviously does not show up. He's his, his mentality is like, well, they've already accused me and I'm innocent. Like I'm not having an adultery with her. And they basically put it back to the jury of the community. And the community actually says, it's kind of, it's not the, it's not what Cadman was looking for. And it certainly wasn't what James Taylor was looking for. The community as the jury basically says, we think that Uncle Billy or William Bickerton acted unbecoming of somebody of his stature in the community, which basically means he should not have been having a close friendship with a married young, younger woman. However, we do not think there was an, adul there was an adultery or there was no like, 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 I forget how they worded it, but basically there was no adultery. They basically said flat out. So it's not the it's not the conviction he was looking for that anybody was looking for on the side of James Taylor and William Cadman, but that doesn't stop. I mean, literally William Cadman and James Taylor, they tell everybody in the East, this is what happened. There's been adultery, people in the West, and literally the church splits in two. And Trifina, this is where it gets even more scandalous. Trifina divorces her husband. I mean, for... During this time, if you look at divorce laws in the United States in the like mid to late 19th century, it's starting to progress, especially in the big cities. But again, in a small community, in a small Western community town like that, it's not common for a woman who's economically dependent on her husband to not only go seek divorce, but to be granted it by, the ju by a judge. The judge grants Trifina's request for divorce, which is huge. Because a judge doing that really means that Trifina had a strong case to bring against her husband. And it, it's not really a full win for her because she's, since she's economically dependent upon James, the court basically says, okay, Trifina's husband is now going to be the, uh, like the guardian of her children. And she is now basically under the economic stewardship of her brother. So, I mean, it's like, I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. I mean, it, it is it is literally like a, a, an amazing, tragic story. And Bickerton, as a result, because again, William Cadman and James Taylor, they're spreading it out in the East that he's having an adultery. William Bickerton's wife hears news of this and William Bickerton and his wife end up getting divorced over the situation. So William Bickerton's marriage is destroyed. And because he's trying, he's out in the West trying to keep this colony afloat. His wife didn't she tried to move out to the West. She didn't like the sand. She didn't like the climate. She was staying out in the East with her family. And they were kind of having like this long distance marriage. So, but she, that Bickerton actually ends up divorcing his wife, which is interesting. And you read the divorce papers. Why does he divorce his wife? And he's actually granted it is because 
he basically is worried that she's going to take property from him and try to take property from him. And that property was interlinked with Bickerton and the church. So Bickerton, it seems like was trying to protect the church property. He didn't want his wife to get it because it was supposed to be for the church because his property and the church were so interlocked. And you can also see Bickerton as a coal miner makes you wonder like, how is he getting all this money? He starts investing in real estate. We see little bits and pieces where he's doing that and he's able to kind of help the church. So he's nervous that his wife is going to take it. So he ends up like going through the whole process. And even in that time, you have to like, you have to do a public notice in the, in the papers in the East saying like, William Bickerton is divorcing, you know, <laughs> like Charlotte, like Charlotte. I mean, it's like, it's like unbelievable. So he does that. He posts it in the East. Charlotte has the, has the chance to respond. She doesn't do anything about the divorce, but he basically says in the divorce papers, my wife, I've been a dutiful husband. I've, you know, I've never committed adultery or done anything. She is, she will not talk to me. She will not come out and live with me. And I'm doing this to protect my property. So there obviously after this was a, a huge estrangement and Charlotte doesn't do anything to try to like like patch up the marriage. So that's how it ends. So it's like, it's horribly tragic. It, it splits the church for 22 years and you literally have a church of Jesus Christ under Bickerton. You have a big cohort of mostly in the West, a little cohort in the East that support Bickerton. And you have this major cohort in the East that supports William Cadman because eventually William Cadman leads the Eastern church because he's one of the leading apostles. And you have this small cohort in Kansas that are like following Cadman. You basically have two churches of Jesus Christ, basically believing in doing the same thing with two different leaders. So this all Sorry, that was a really long winded re like that, response. That's fine. I I, I appreciate that. Um, and it's it's kind of reliving the book again. <laughs> it's been a couple of years since I read it through. Um, so basically, what let's just kind of uh, talk about essentially what happens with the um, this finally comes to a head, and William Bickerton is kind of just removed, if you will, as a result, uh, as in the leadership position of the church, maybe just talk about the, the intrigue and politics of what all happened there. Yeah. So like, he's the leader of his own cohort, right? And Cadman's leader of his own cohort. And this is really bothering William Cadman. I mean, this is just, really just real quick, roughly, were they equal size, both groups? That's a good question. I don't know exact numbers. I believe they were of fairly equal size. That's what it seems like to me because the church wasn't that big for the most part because a lot of people had moved out west and there was a fairly good number of people in the east that supported Bickerton. And this is really getting like William Cadman angry, right? Like, and he's like, he doesn't like that this Church of Jesus Christ is like, they, they're incorporated, they eventually reincorporate in St. John, in Zion Valley, like they eventually reincorporate the church there. And he feels like they're encroaching on that, uh, on that incorporation. He actually says that in one of the minutes in his group. So Cadman, like they actually say, like, you should write to the papers, they, like you have this in the minutes. So the church basically votes and there's like this meeting saying like, you should write to the papers. Cadman does write to the papers and it is like downright dirty. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like he calls him, it's like he called, he says that Bickerton is like, like being influenced by the devil. He calls him like, I don't even, I'm just trying to remember all the things that he says about him. He basically, like, he's just like, like slamming him one thing after another. I mean, you read it, you're like, holy crap. Like, I can't believe these they, people are saying these things. And Bickerton really doesn't get in the fray. He has a friend that, that kind of get that's on his side that eventually gets into the fray and starts writing again, equally nasty things about William Cadman. 
And I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm, it's downright dirty. It, what the things that they're saying back and forth to each other, uh, minus using curse words, but like they're, they're being very, they're being very creative intellectually with the Bible, trying to describe each other, mostly, you know, spawns of Satan and things of that nature or along those lines. <laughs> so it's like, it's just crazy. So then what, so what, what interesting is, so of course the LDS missionaries get wind of this. And they're now doing missionary out missionary work, like, you know, out in like Kansas. And they hear about this Bickertonite group and they hear about this drama that's going on in this community. And they find an opportunity to say, oh yeah, like, and you see some of the writings between them and their diaries. Like it was cool reading through the church history archives, some of their writings. And they're like, yeah, let's go out here and let's like go preach to the Bickertonites and let's go see. And Bickerton gets really angry. Like he actually loses his temper at one of the meetings where the LDS missionaries are like talking with the people because not only are they talking with people, they're converting people on Cadman's side and on Bickerton's side. This is a lose-lose situation for Bickerton and for Cadman. They're both losing members and members are getting tired of the info fighting. There's people leaving because of that on both sides. There's people leaving on both sides because LD, the LDS send missionaries to Kansas and they send missionaries to Pennsylvania and they're getting member, they're converting people on both ends. I mean, this is a telltale sign of like what not to do. And it, it was, it was bad, but the LDS, they were really good. They, I mean, they're talking about like, again, priesthood authority. Well, William Cadman says he has authority. Bickerton says he's has authority. Look what's going on in your group and look what's going on with our group. Our group is prospering. I mean, and who would argue with that, right? Like they were prospering, especially like economically, financially. I mean, it looks like God's blessings from their perspective are flowing down and they have several congregants that leave. So it was a really smart and a very tactful way for the LDS missionaries to get converts because the Bickertonite church on both sides was basically on fire, like not in a good way. So basically let's get this all to a head here. So we're, uh, what would, what they do to stem this, this loss and how did, how were they able to make this work again? This is what's amazing about the Bickertonite group. I mean, they actually come back together, believe it or not. It's unbelievable. You would, most groups, especially within the Latter-day Saint, I mean, in any religion, you look at Christianity throughout, schisms are upon schisms are upon schisms, right? I mean, in any evangelical communities and primitive restorationist communities, Latter-day Saint communities, but Bickerton's group ends up coming back together. And this is really to two parts reasons why it comes back together. It's on the part of really smart and very sympathetic members and on the part of William Bickerton being able to swallow his pride. So 22 years, they're split up. Bickerton is trying to preach to the Native Americans. He's going out to Oklahoma. That's a really interesting chapter. As all this is going on, he's still preaching to the Native Americans. And again, this is kind of getting the East angry because they're like, you're not supposed to preach to the Native Americans. You're not the true church. We're the true church. And they should, we need to be preaching to them. I mean, it's just, it's like funny reading some of the things out, how they're, 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 they're biting back and forth at each other. But eventually, the group, there's this group out in the West and there's this group out in the East that are like, this is stupid. Like we're basically the same church. Like after so many decades, you kind of just get tired of it. And they're like, we need to come back together. Family members and friends are on both sides. Like Alexander Cherry, who's an interesting, he was an apostle earlier on in Bickerton. I think he was, a, I think he was ordained in 1877. And he kind of flip-flops back and forth between Bickerton's church and Cadman's church. And eventually he's reordained an apostle again when they come back together. So it just kind of goes to show you what's happening. People don't really know in certain cases who, which side to choose. They flip-flop back and forth. 
And eventually like what ends up happening is, so the, the membership is kind of moving towards this. So William Cadman kind of hears wind of this and he basically swallows his pride and says, okay, let me go to the West. And they, he has this private meeting with William Bickerton. We don't know what, what was said, but basically it comes across that like they don't come up with any terms whatsoever. And they basically are split, but the membership is real still pushing forwards this. And eventually Bickerton agrees to do it. He eventually swallows his pride. I think he realizes he's old. He's in his late 80s. He knows he's going to die soon. So he has two choices. He either keeps the, the church is kind of moving in this direction, but he really has the power to make it come together quickly and to heal all wounds. And he either has that choice or he has the choice of keeping them separated and his legacy, his entire life's work is completely in shambles. And that's how he dies leaving it. So he decides to do the other thing, which was to bring it back together. And it was a hard pill to swallow. Eventually he comes to terms with the church in the East. And this, these were the terms that they gave Bickerton. They basically said, okay, you can stay an elder in the church. You don't have to be re-baptized. That's the other thing. Like, the, the narrative, the, her, the heritage history narrative is that like there was one church, Bickerton broke away. That's not true at all because Bickerton never got, had to be rebaptized. None his members never had to be rebaptized. If they really apostatized or broke away, everybody would have to be rebaptized. Nobody was rebaptized. The deal was is that, okay, Bickerton, you get to be an elder. You are no longer the prophet or the president of the church. William Cadman stays the president, but all real estate, everything else comes back together. And all the membership has to do is basically agree that they agree to the church as it was in 1862. Basically saying like, we agreed to the church organization, how it was founded with the 12 apostles and everything and how we became a church and the theology as it was organized in 1862. That was the, that was the agreement to come back together. So you have two churches that are literally very simple terms. Bickerton agrees to that. He's no longer the prof, considered the prophet. He's no longer considered the president. And the church comes back together. And that's that. They sign paperwork. All real estate comes back together. And the church is healed. Just like that. After 22 years of infighting and, and people being converted to the LDS and people leaving and doing other things and families are split apart. It was just super nasty. But good on Bickerton, I guess on a on a, on a personal level, if I'll take my historian hat off for a second, that must have not been easy to do. And I think it must have been not hard for William. It must have been hard for William Cadman to do too, because I mean, <laughs> these are people that really were like button heads at each other, right? By the record, for the record, Trifina Taylor, eventually, what happens to her? Like everyone, well, what happens to Trifina, right? Like, I don't know exactly. I would love to find the records that ends up what happens to her. I do know this, that eventually... She, get, she gets kicked out of Bickerton's church. Like, the, you know how they're split into two? She eventually gets kicked out of Bickerton's church. Why? Because after she divorces James, she starts having, it says that in one of the church minutes, it says that she's been riding around in carriages with this man and the man was her attorney. <laughs> and they basically were like, listen, forgive me. She wasn't divorced yet. She was in the process of divorcing. And the Bickerton was like, you can't, you get, you're still a married woman. You can't be like, you know, do out with another man. And, and she basically tells the group, like, I can do what I want. Like I'm done with my husband or whatever. And they eventually kick her out. They, they let her not be a deaconess. What happens to her after that? I don't know. But mm -hmm. Trifina, I mean, she was, she was a, she must've been really like strong-willed because that would have taken some guff, not only to divorce her husband, but also to have 
to go against your church to say you shouldn't be alone with your attorney doing stuff. We see something's going on. And she's like, whether it was something was going on or not, she's just kind of like, I can do what I want. Like, so that's what's interesting. But the church eventually comes together. Bickerton is at this point, like, you know, the, the church is like picking up the pieces and eventually they do pick up the pieces. And I mean, I want you to know for the record too, on both sides, like membership was really dwindling. You actually see minutes where people are like, people aren't coming. We're not holding meetings every Sunday because we're not getting good turnouts. I mean, it's, it's sad, but the church starts to pick up the pieces when that comes back together. So good on Bickerton, good on William Cadman to come up with this idea and the, the hard pill for Bickerton to swallow. Eventually Bickerton he wants to, they're having a conference out in the East. He's invited to come. He couldn't come because he was in his old age. He's, I mean, he's almost 90 years old. So he instead writes like this kind of like autobiography of himself and basically says, well, you know, I'll kind of leave like this last Testament to the church. And he sends that in lieu of his attendance. And you would think, okay, no big deal, right? Like Bickerton is just kind of giving his last like hurrah to the church and to the community. Well, it was a big deal because the conference basically got this, like, you're, you know, you're supposed to read the report, right? Well, he's not here. So let's read the report. Well, they read the report prior and it's, oh my gosh, it's scandalous because Bickerton never acknowledges the, he, he like skips over the whole adultery thing. He just kind of glosses over it. Well, I mean, rightfully so. I mean, you probably don't want to bring that up again after the church comes together, right? Well, it was this big deal. The church, the, the conference actually had to break for lunch to kind of discuss like, what the heck are they going to do about this? this uh, report and they come back after lunch and they basically come up with this political kind of agreement and they say, okay, we'll accept Bickerton's testimony, but just the parts that where he, before the adultery incident, everything else after that, we don't accept like his, so his, like his, 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 his talking about going out to missionary work in the India, in the West, we're, we're not going to accept that. And all this other stuff that he did in the West, we're not going to accept that. And that word eventually gets back to Bickerton, and that really brings him heartbreak. He writes to the news, the St. John Press, and is on his 90th birthday. So, you know, Uncle Billy is writing to the press. Everybody, the godfather of St. John is, you know, kind of saying, and this is what he writes. He's talking about some happy things, but then he says this really sad line. He goes, oh, I feel like Job, that the balance of my life, I will wait until my change comes. I mean, how freaking sad is that? Like you literally, like he's basically comparing himself to Job and he's basically saying, I basically like Job, unlike Job who went through this horrible heartache, but in the end, in his own fleshly life gets everything restored back to him twice fold, right? God gives everything back to him. He wins over the devil, right? Pickerton basically says, I'm like Job, but I got to wait till I die to get everything that I, that I, that I'm owed. I mean, so it's sad. And then after that, he, um, Apostle Alan Wright, he basically writes a, a Apostle Alan. He eventually ends up living with Alan Wright for a little while. That's living out in the West, and he tells Alan Wright, saying, "Hey, you know, I know I'm going to die soon. I'm like 90 years old. I would like you to read this chapter in like at my funeral. It's Job 19, which doesn't sound too bad because that's a common like. There's this one verse that's often common, re commonly read at funerals where it says like like you know I know that my redeemer lives and that the latter day he'll stand on the earth. Like that's the common one we read. But that whole chapter, no, he says to read the whole chapter. The whole chapter is like Bickerton's life. It's basically like my wife has left me, my children have left me, my kinsfolk have failed, my familiar friends have oh, forgotten me. So I've got it right. I'll just read it. Uh, my kinsfolk have failed and my familiar friends have forgotten me all that my words were now written all that they were printed in a book 
that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. And, uh, you know, you have that at the beginning of your book and just to show the sad ending to this uh, life of his having that read in, 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 at his funeral. Yeah, it was, it's like, and eventually Bickerton does die. He dies because there was a fire in his house. He didn't die from the fire, but it seemed like it spooked him enough where eventually he just dies after, not long after that fire. And then he, and then that was what Alan Wright read at his funeral. I mean, it's like, it's literally a cry from the grave. <laughs> like It's like, you just can't make this stuff up. Like there's no, like, there's just no speculation in it. I mean, he literally even writes on his 90th birthday, he feels like Job. Then he has this read at his funeral. I mean, it's just so freaking sad. <laughs> it's like, and no wonder, no wonder the church, like no wonder this wasn't written in the heritage history of the church. Like who's gonna, first of all, who wants to piece this together? Second of all, who wants to talk about it? Because again, it's all based on priesthood authority, right? Like every, and this is why Latter-day Saint history is so, we're getting to the point where it's becoming mature and we don't worry about it. But like early histories about Joseph Smith, when they're talking about polygamy and talking about like, Oh, did he marry like women younger than him? And you still have people that say he, he never practiced polygamy. I've never met a, a scholar, a PhD scholar who says Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy. I know I have really close friends that I love and dear. We very friendly disagree on this. I'm adamantly a believer that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. I think it's overwhelming evidence where you still have people that are really strong that know it was only Brigham Young. But like you see, like there's all this tension within Latter-day Saint history because it all goes boils down to priest authority. Somebody who has priesthood authority, that line has to travel, right? Hands have to be laid on people. And if you're unholy, then how could you be passing this line? So it, it tangles things up. So all this history that's going on with Bickerton and the church and the apostles and moving out West and people sabotaging the West and then William Cadman and all the nasty things they said to each other. I mean, who wants to freaking like piece all that piece, all that stuff together. But it's crazy interesting as historians and as people. And it just goes to show you that history is real. Life is not black and white. Religion is never black and white. And this is, and again, this is kind of goes like to what we were talking about before. This is the beautiful thing of history because if you really dig deep into it, you have more questions than answers. And you start to realize that life really is this cool thing where like you should have more questions than answers. And God is bigger than any line of priesthood authority and trying to piece all this stuff together and trying to patch do patchwork within heritage history. Latter-day Saint history is fraught with heritage history. And now you're having scholars coming out that are trying to like really push forward in the Joseph Smith papers and other things like that, even on the RLDS community, my, my, my work for whatever, for whatever two cents that I have is just trying to like push it out being like, no, there's real life here. Like, you know, we're trying to get the details right as historians we're imperfect. Maybe we get some things right. Maybe we get some things wrong, but in the end, we're trying to piece together the real story. And when you start to put those pieces together, the real story is way more interesting than anything that is fairy tale. So, uh, I'm having fun here, uh, Daniel. I think we're going to beat uh, my record for longest interview, oh. well, John Hamer's interview, but this is I'm, fine. Because I'm so long-winded and annoying. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you and Matt Harris, you know, I just ask a question and I get 15 minutes of answers and it makes my job a lot easier. So, well, I, what I want to get into now is I just want to talk a little bit about um, some of the beliefs of your church. Um, so to, to how, how maybe you're similar to Protestants and evangelicals and then how you're similar to uh, other restoration churches. Um, 
And then I just want to maybe talk a little bit about some of the history, because honestly, there isn't a whole lot out there. You know, your book is about it and a few other things, but, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot out there. So this would be a good opportunity to educate our audience on your church. So essentially, your church um, basically just uses the Bible and the Book of Mormon as your scriptures, correct? Yeah. As of now, that's what we did. That's what we do. Early on, we used a little bit of Doctrine and Covenants, but yeah, it was then it was just Bible, Book of Mormon. It, it was like that for a long time. No Pearl Grey Christ, no Book of Abraham, anything like that, no. right? And uh, what about the, the Civil War prophecy? Does that still play a role in the church? I mean, they printed it a, a while ago, like in the 60s, like the church kind of had an official printing of it. I think it was in the 60s, but we do have like pieces of that you can get it like so they they did like show that just as like hey this was this cool prophecy but that's because in our early history it was such a such a powerful belief in our church about the civil war but yeah like the the church earlier on had like basically a knowledge saying like yeah this was look at this cool prophecy this was real okay and so and this is interesting because you know i think one of the things and we we discussed this on our previous uh when we got to know each other and i've mentioned this to other people is that I think the issue that we have with with the church is that because they believe Joseph Smith was a fallen prophet and then Sidney Rigdon was a fallen prophet, well, of course, William Bickerton is going to be a fallen prophet, right? And that sense is that it was almost like that expectation is there. So that's, I kind of think, where um, that mindset is there. And so even the idea that they would have a negative view or just that he had fallen would not be like a foreign concept to them. No, but what's interesting is Bickerton as a prophet would be a foreign concept. In, our, in my church, the word prophet is not – so like in the LDS church, it's very – I mean you have a prophet, right? They often talk about the prophet. In a lot of Latter-day Saint groups, you have prophets or you have the role of a prophet. In my church, that doesn't – I mean, technically, maybe somebody can be a prophet, but that word, at least I'll speak from, by the way, I'm speaking for myself, right? I can only speak for myself and my experiences in the church. That word is almost never used, especially about somebody in the church. Once in a while, I'll hear, you know, I'll, I'll hear about this one woman um, that was a, that, that potentially was a prophetess and the church acknowledged her as that. And that, that's cool. And then uh, Arlene Buffington, who has, who wrote the songs of Zion, some people consider her a prophetess, which whether you believe her, whether, whether you're in, in my church and you agree or disagree, whether she's a prophetess as a, as a, as just somebody who studied pro like prophecy in a historical sense, what the gift that she has is considered prophecy from an academic standpoint, like what she has done, like any scholar who would write about her would have to call her a prophetess because she's literally singing prophecy, which is like throughout the Bible. I mean, look at David. That's like all the Psalms are. And then you have like Miriam, I believe she even sang songs and Isaiah sang a little bit there. These are all, it's a prophetic, it's a very special prophetic gift that you see. So a lot of people consider the songs of Zion prophecy that can be considered taboo. I mean, if I were to actually like stand up and say that to some people in church, be like, yeah, the songs of Zion are prophecy, whether I believe it or disagree with it, I'm just talking from an academic standpoint, people would be like, what? This is not prophecy. It's just an inspire. It's an inspired gift where some people in the church literally do consider it prophecy. But I mean, just from a purely academic standpoint, what she's doing is considered prophecy. So, so that would be, that would be somebody in the church, but like, I never knew Bickerton was a prophet growing up. Like I never even knew we even had that office. So like reading that, that was like a shock to me. 
And not only that, but that he was called prophet, seer, and revelator. Mm-hmm. That was like a huge deal. Like we, those words are never thrown out in my church, at least from what I've seen, unless you're talking about history. And very rarely would you even bring that up. So the fact that we even had that office and that's what Bickerton was called. And not only Bickerton, but his counselors were called prophet, seers, and revelators too. And then you also had prophets and prophetesses all throughout the church that were recognized. I mean, that's like, that's like so foreign because today we don't, like we almost never have that. Like, I don't even know if our, our leadership would even consider anybody in our church a prophet or a prophetess now openly. I don't know. I've never heard it. So I, who knows? So you can utter prophecies, but you can't, but the office of prophet doesn't exist in your church. Is that, I mean, technically I heard one apostle say that it does exist like kind of like on a, like a casual basis, not like publicly, but privately, he said that it does technically exist on the books, but has that office been filled for a very long time? No. Like has anyone ever officially acknowledged someone as a prophet in a long time? No, like decades. I mean, and even the one woman I'm talking about decades ago, she was kind of like, I don't even know if it was recorded in the minutes. I'd have to look. I think it was just kind of like one of those things of like some of the apostles considered her like, yeah, she's a prophetess, but it wasn't like one of those things where it's like, Hey everybody, let's put it in the minutes where she's a prophetess. I don't know that for sure, but I'm going to guess that it probably wasn't like that. So I have to say, I was going to get to Arlene and I well just talk about her now because I attended a uh, church of Jesus Christ uh, just North of Tampa. And, uh, I had a wonderful time and, and I, I, I closely watched everything that was going on in that church service. And um, Patrick McKay had told me about her and he told me the story of how she would receive these, uh, these songs would be in her head. And, and then she would, once the song was completed, you know, where the, they had the right notes and everything and everything was right. Then that song would be gone from her head and then she'd go to the next song. Well, I just oh, that's a nice story. That's an interesting story. And I and I come from a charismatic movement, so I I can relate to it. I said that sounds very familiar to me. But when I get there, I said, oh my goodness, that's a whole hymnal. And then I see there's this binder, and uh, well, yeah. And then 15 years later, she started getting some more songs. We got this right. binder of stuff. Well, one of the things that really struck me was the amount of people who are singing her when they were singing from that hymnal. And the amount of people that were singing that song and they weren't even reading, looking at the hymnal, like they knew the words of those songs so well that they didn't, weren't even looking at the hymnal. And I thought, oh, yeah. I thought this woman really had an impact on this church. Oh yeah. That, those songs, those songs, most congregations in the United States, the vast, vast majority have those. And most people know offhand, they know some of the songs just like they wouldn't even have to read them. Some branches are more songs of Zion proficient than others, but overall, like there are several songs that like, it just permeates through the church. You, you have, we have like, you know, like those summer like retreats or like what we call campouts. Like they, they have those in the summer hymnals that they print for those retreats, like her songs are in there. So yeah, her songs are very prominent within the church. They play an integral role in every single, pretty much every single service and every single branch in the United States. I certainly know that in Mexico, I'm not sure about like Africa or India or anything like that, but within Canada, the United States and Mexico, absolutely. Her songs are, they're famous. I mean, people know them. They're, they're just a part of the church. It's a remarkable story. I just, that makes your church so unique, period. I mean, I can't think of any other church that has this kind of thing going for it. Yeah. I don't know the whole story and I wish someone would have the balls to write a book about it. Cause like, I don't, I forgive you. I'm just like, so brash sometimes, but like, I just have to say it like it is. I wish somebody, hopefully somebody in her family would be willing to write all the stuff 
all the wonderful miracles that Arlene had and the experiences she had, but also the guff that she got early on. It was not an easy road for her. Some of the apostles were not happy with her songs and did not accept them. They wanted to change some of the words. Like there was this one apostle. I Now this is just from hearsay. So I don't have documents to support this. I've just heard this from the family members and other people, but I've heard it. I've heard the story so many times from so many different sources that I'm assuming that some of it at least has to be somewhat true. We're like, like one apostle who was very musically inclined, like didn't like some of the words, like like that, like he thought like, well, you know, like we should tweak some of these and we should tweak some of the notes, like, you know, and maybe we could accept that where that like hurt Arlene, where it was like, no, I like she has no musical, she has no musical ability. I love Arlene. I, she passed away just recently. Very, very sweet, sweet, wonderful, tender woman. I cannot say enough about that wonderful woman. I mean, no, no, no person's perfect, but she was pretty freaking close. Like she was amazing and so sweet, but like she has no musical ability. Her singing is not good. Like, I mean, I'm sure the Lord really appreciates it. God loves a, a singing voice, right? But for she has no good music. Like she can't really sing very well. And even like the recordings that she would sing. So oftentimes like towards the end of her life, the person that was composing her songs like he, she has to sing in a recorder. Like first it was Eugene and then it was like, and then, you know, then it's um, Phil Bagnola who was doing it. Both beautiful pianists, um, beautiful composers. But I mean, she's literally singing a microphone and it's like off key and stuff. And like, and they'll compose the songs for her. And then she would tell them like, no, that's not the right note. Like it's this. And then she would have to like do it. So it just goes to show you, she really had no musical ability, but she she had these really cool experiences. Like one song I think came to her were like a bird. Like she couldn't remember. I think she forgot the tune or I can't remember the exact story, but she forgot the tune or she didn't know the tune. And then a bird like came to her window and started singing and it sang the tune that she needed to hear, like that she remembered something. I mean, like people need to write this stuff down, whether you believe it, or whether people believe it or not, it's such an interesting story. And the, 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 the fight, like not the fighting, but the, the battles kind of between of like being accepted in the church eventually what ends up happening is just so many members liked it and they eventually like published the books i think the first hymnals they published in the city of detroit they had a publisher come out here and do that and they just passed them out to the congregations and the congregations eventually like it was just very organic and then like at that point there's no stopping it because once the membership accepts it and they likes it I don't know all the details of like which leaders didn't like it, which ones did it. But in the end, at that point, you just can't stop it. And now, like you said, it just permeates through the church. So it's a very organic movement of the Songs of Zion. It's 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 a super, super cool history. And I really hope somebody writes it. If one looks at how canonization works in the Catholic Church, it follows a similar pattern. In other words, for a, for a saint to be canonized or whatever, it almost like one of the qualifications of a saint to be canonized is they have to be persecuted by the church or they have to be, uh, be given a tough time because many of them were. Yeah. But then one of the other uh, points of canonization is that if it becomes very popular amongst the people, like if a saint becomes really popular, then they know, okay, this is this is definitely a candidate for sainthood. Now, we understand canonization, they use the same process for canonizing the Bible. The canonization process is how they use for saints. So I, I don't know. I think you guys got a new canon in your church, man. <laughs> yeah, oh, I would agree with you. It's there's There was no stopping it. So whether people want to call her a prophetess or not, what she did and what her what has happened is is pretty incredible. 
yeah, it really struck me when Patrick told me the story. And I thought, okay, this it kind of changed the trajectory of the channel because I realized, okay, spiritual stuff's going to intrude on, on me. And I'm not going to be afraid to embrace it and talk about it. A lot of some other people are like, okay, let's move on to the next subject. I don't, I don't feel comfortable with this God stuff, you know, but <laughs> I think it's a kind of a cool thing. I like to explore that world. Well, let's just talk a little bit more here because I'm having fun. Um, uh, just a few more doctrinal questions I have for you. Um, is baptism necessary for salvation in your church? Depends on who you ask. Doctrinally, okay. yes. You have to be baptized in order to like, well, let me put it to you this way. I, I, it's, it's like, it's, uh, let me give you like a nuanced opinion on how I understand it within the church. I'll give you the faith and doctrine perspective as I understand it. And then I'll kind of give you like the nuanced perspective of like what you hear. So yes, in order to be a member of the church, you have to be baptized. It is integral to salvation. The Book of Mormon talks about it, how you have to be baptized to be born again. They read that scripture in the Bible and the gospels where Jesus says, you must be born of water and the spirit. Or you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's paramount. You have to do that. But the born again experience begins with the heart, right? Like you have to accept Jesus into your heart. That's first. Baptism is almost like marriage. It's like, it's like the Sarah. So the born again experience happens within the heart. You're converted, but you have like, it's just like when you're going to get married, like, of course you've fallen in love with the person you're going to be with, right? You, you've, you've fallen in love with that partner, but you have to go through the formal ceremony to be officially married. That's kind of how like baptism is in, in my church is that like you're born again by accepting Jesus in your heart, but you have to be, have that ceremony to basically like accept it. Right. And then you have the hands laid on you formally for the reception of the Holy spirit. So that's how you're, you're a member of the church. However, like you've heard people in the past say like, well, if you're not baptized in the church of Jesus Christ, you're not going to heaven. Like the church today doesn't stand by that. I've never heard anyone formally say that. And that would be a very, heaven would be a very lonely place if only 20,000 Bickertonites, you know, every so often made it there. Like, oh, that'd be pretty sad. But, um, but the church basically believes now is that as long as like, it's, it's basically up to God, right? Like it basically, there's these, these verses in scripture that we like to read where it basically says like, God does the judging. So like, you know, if you're not a member of this church or you're a good person, let's say you're not even a Christian, like God does the judging, like that tends, to, I tend to personally to believe that, like, especially through all this history writing and you just by reading and meeting other people from Christianity, outside religions in general, it's like, if I could put my spiritual hat on, God is so much bigger. We have no idea how he, how he handles things in the afterlife. Like, so I'm very open-minded about it pers on a personal level, but yes, in order to be a member of our church, you have to be baptized. Okay. Okay. It's, you guys have a sim well, a fellow restorationist church, which would be familiar to evangelicals would be like church of Christ. They have a similar belief system about yeah. baptism that kind of makes them unique within the evangelical kind of evangelical churches it's got some are more evangelical than others but that that's kind of a doctrine that they have now i come from a tradition that considers baptism doesn't considers uh, baptism as part of the salvation process yeah. and you're talking about alexander campbell's group yeah right? yeah alexander yeah. campbell's yeah yeah and, and that's very similar because singy rigdon was yeah. like a campbellite ba yeah. baptist minister in bickerton so you see like that's it's very similar thinking you're absolutely right yeah it's that's that's where that comes from uh trinity where uh, you guys are trinitarian correct uh, it depends on who you ask. Yes, technically, but people don't use that word Trinitarian. So like okay. we believe we call it the Godhead, which is basically the same thing as the Trinity. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it's like, you believe God, the father, 
Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're kind of separate entities, but they all work together. It depends on who you ask. It's in our faith and doctrine. And I think the faith and doctrine says that they're like completely separate entities. And I even think early on, we kind of tried to figure out, but like nowadays you very rarely, at least from my perspective, I very rarely heard people like try to like, like sparse the Godhead and try to like accurately describe it because you can't, you can't describe the Trinity and because everybody has different opinions on it, but basically you have God, the father, Jesus, and the Holy spirit. They're three in one. And that's kind of the same. So it's basically, it's, it's the same in my opinion. Um, one kind, I was going through your doctrinal statement when I visited the church, they gave me uh, some pamphlets and I went through it. And I, one of the things that really struck, stuck out to me was this idea of Christ's return coming at the end of the peaceful reign. Yeah. What is that? It's a very unique concept or at least what's not, I mean, there's other churches that believe in it. I can't remember exactly. I I remember doing a study not too long, just kind of like looking to see like, are there other churches that kind of believe in similar things? And there are, but it's, it's not common within the Latter-day Saint group. So like the, you have three main things usually within Christianity and then you have in between. So you have like this idea of premillennialism, the idea, simple, simply put, you believe that Jesus has to come and then that initiates like the thousand years of peace, right? You also have amillennialism, which is like this belief that like the church age is gradually coming and like, it's like eventually like you have like this millennium, but basically like the idea is like, there's different sparses of amillennialism, but the idea is like, there's a church age, right? And then eventually like there's like this perfect time and that's like what Revelation's talking about, but it's like a progression. And then you have post-millennialism, which is this idea that like you build and it's gonna progress. And eventually we're gonna get to a point where we're gonna be like in the millennium and like as humans, like w- through the Holy Spirit, we have like created like this Zionic or millennialist s- utopia. And then Jesus comes down to basically say, good job, everybody. Like you did it. And now I'm going to come with you and be with you guys. The Bickertonites have this really unique idea. I, for a very jargonic term in grad school, I called it post-Zionic premillennialism, which was really kind of dumb. <laughs> it's like, it's really simply put of like this, but it, it makes sense. Like if you're talking like within that, those ideas, if you're going to put a name on it, at least for me, we believe that, well, I, well, let me put it this way. I don't believe this, but the church doctrine believes this. And there's many people in my church that don't believe this. There's many people who do believe in it, but this is the faith and doctrine of the church. This, that, like, Basically, Zion is like this time on earth that is completely in the flesh. Like there's going to be a destruction on America. Some people say eventually throughout the whole earth. Then the Choiceer, which is this Native American prophet who's going to be named Joseph is going to come up. He's going to kind of like the Native, the Native Americans are like one of the lost tribes of Israel. They're their seed of Joseph. And they're going to kind of like help build this new Jerusalem, gather all the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're going to be like in this fleshly Zionic utopia. And that's going to last roughly a thousand years, give or take. Some people have different theories as to what's going to happen. And then there's going to be like another destruction and there's going to be this, all this confusion. And then like Satan's going to be unleashed. So like basically Satan is like tied for like this thousand year period of Zion in the flesh. And then he's going to be released maybe early. Who knows? People talk about that. And then you know, we're going to have this confusion. There's going to be more wars. And then Jesus is going to come down with his hosts of angels, swoop everyone away. And then we've entered the millennium and that is fully in the spirit. And then you have another thousand years of peace. So you basically have like 2000 years of peace. That was not, the church never officially had a stance on this until much later. Bickerton did not believe that. He believed basically what most Latter-day Saints believe is that it was, he was pre-millennialist. Jesus comes down 
Zion and the millennium are like the same event. You kind of have a little bit of Zion maybe before the millennium because you build it, right? Like, and you're kind of building the new Jerusalem and kind of gathering the lost tribes of Israel. But Jesus comes down and then he initiates like the true Zion or the true millennium. So he was pre-millennialist. Where Cat, this theory of like the Zion, the Zion and then millennium comes from the Cadman family and comes from William Cadman originally. And it was more or less evolved into more like walls and pieces by like his his later family like William H and Alma Cadman and they have lots of writings on it but William Cadman Sr. was the one that first started it he started it with this uh it was a series in a newspaper and it was called pre and they eventually po published it the church and they called it pre-millennial which was actually not a really good name because it's not pre-millennial at all <laughs> like that's not what like that's not what pre-millennialism means within the like just a normal Christian you know talking um, but like, and then he had this other pamphlet called Daniel's Little Horn, which he thought like the little horn was the, like that's talked about in Daniel's revelation, which most Christians for the most part on the broad scale, I know people disagree, but a lot of times they talk about that as some form of the antichrist, right? Where like William Cadman senior thought it was the United States of America was like the little horn. It was a very interesting pamphlet. Um, I don't know if the church is even accepts that as like true doctrine anymore, but it was published officially by the church and you can still get it. Um, I don't know if the church would even officially accept that now. I, you have different opinions on it, but yeah, that's the church stance. And we, we flip-flopped like Bickerton believe it, Cadman did, but there was no like official stance. What ends up really causing issues is in the early 1900s, Alexander Cherry attends to believe he's the new president of the church. He tends to believe that like, you know, Cadman's side of like this, you know, like two 1000 year periods, give or take is like the idea. But you have people within the 12 of the apostles that don't agree with that. They kind of have different ideas. Some believe more along the lines of Bickerton. Others have different ideas. Alan Wright, who was Bickerton's friend, had this unique idea about like, you know, and he published this pamphlet, passed it out to everybody. He was, I guess he didn't have the authority or like the permission to do that. And he got really mad. And looking back at it, like, I'm, I'm, I'm talking as a historian, but I'm also talking personally. I think it was really stupid. Like, I mean, literally you had six apostles that didn't agree with it, six apostles who did agree with it. And they were basically like, I think it was six and six, but basically you're like, well, if you don't agree with this two, two periods, like then you're out of here. And everyone's like, fine, we're leaving. And then like, you had like a split within the church for belief, for a freaking belief that like, whether it's one period or two, it's like, it's so dumb. Is this, is this when you had the, the start of the primitive church of Jesus Christ? Yeah, it's like, you. yeah. It's like and when, and when, when was this? What period of time? Uh, I have to look the exact dates. Was it 1913 or 1918? I can't remember. It was in the teens. And I, then when did they get back together? Well, I mean, some people, I have to look. See, I'm not a, per, I'm not, I'm really good at the 19th century and very, very early 20th century history. But like, once I get into the 20th century, like I haven't really dug through the minutes and stuff as much as I should have. And I'm like basically going off of the, off of memory here, but like, yeah, you have this group, you have this, you have them split off and kind of try to start their own church. And I mean, it was so dumb. It was like, basically because they believed like that, that they, they were arguing over like the, the what was going to happen in the you know, in the future, at least to me, it's dumb. I yeah. think it's stupid. Oh, it's, it's, as long as people are, a man is involved in the church, especially men, uh, you're going to have this kind of uh, stupid stuff that's going to split us. And we see it, we yeah. have it, we, we have church splits all the time as well on our side. Um, yeah. I mean, just a couple more things I want to touch base here with you. Um, 
Yeah, I'm glad we got to talk about the primitive church. I, I was driving through rural Florida and I see this church says primitive, primitive church of Jesus Christ. I thought, okay, do I have some rogue congregation that never joined back? So I, I, a couple of months ago, I've, I found, I drove by and I thought I pulled into the parking lot and took some pictures of it, of the sign. And I realized they were based out of Tennessee and they turned out to be a oneness Pentecostal church, but they had the name primitive church, of Jesus Christ. So I thought, oh, maybe I found a lost congregation. Wow. They kind of like dwindled away. And some people I probably I'm sure came back. I mean, it was okay. Just- yeah. Yeah, so that, that was kind of thought. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, no, the greatest split that happened was with Bickerton and Cadman. That okay. was like the, that was the biggest that we've yeah. ever had in history. Um, okay, well, I, I think we've 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 definitely covered just about everything I wanted to cover with you. Uh, I think I could have done another hour with you uh, easily. Yeah, you too. Um, so I got the book cover here. All right, and this is my question I have for you. Sure. You guys did this unique thing where you uh, basically gave him a halo and when i first saw the book i didn't realize it was a halo mm-hmm. and i saw this this thing he was doing with his hand and then i read the whole book and i get to the back of this and said that this was actually designed deliberately yeah. to basically to make him look like a like a mid middle middle ages saint portrait yeah i i thought it was a really cool so they contracted a really cool artist to do it so like one thing you know within the publishing industry almost always the author has no say whatsoever on the cover. I mean, they kind of can give ideas, but the publisher really helps pick the cover and Signature did an amazing job and the artist that they hired to do it did an amazing job. And they, like you said, there was really a really cool iconography behind it where like they tried to show Bickerton as like a saint or like somebody who was like doing a blessing. And I thought it was really cool because I mean, that really describes Bickerton. Like he really was like this kind of like saintly figure, like you said, almost like went through the ringer and to be canonized in a sense, but like this book is in a sense, resurrecting his story and kind of bringing that forward. So the art, the, the, the imagery behind the artistry, the, what the artist did was absolutely beautiful. I loved it. I thought it was awesome. I thought the, I thought like what they were trying to convey was amazing. And I said, absolutely, let's do it. Okay. So this is the question I have for you. How do you think he would have reacted to the picture? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he would have liked it or not. Who knows? Vickerton, he was not like a, I mean, so in some ways he was, he had grandiose ideas, but towards, especially towards the end of his life, he was not like that. I mean, you can kind of see the man and, and that's often how we are when we're young, we're, we're, you know, we're very like, you know, spicy and, you know, Sprite. And as we get older, we're kind of like more like mellow and more down to earth. So I think like, I don't know if he would have really liked it, but I think he would have liked the idea that he was being, his story was being resurrected because for goodness sake, he literally had it on his deathbed read. So, I mean, he, I mean, his story, he knew his story was tucked away. Like that was the sad thing. So Job 19, not only described his life, but he was saying like, my story's not going to be told, like tell my story. Like that's crazy to me. So I'll tell you right now, I never knew that getting into this. Never, ever knew that. I was midway through doing research when I actually like, I knew he had Job read his funeral. I eventually came across that. But when I actually said like, let me read this whole chapter, it changed the whole trajectory of like what I was doing. When I read like what was in that chapter and what had happened and when I fully understood like what actually happened as best I could piece it together, which was, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to piece that together. Let me tell you.
Like there's Gary Enns and I are like two peas in a pod, which is interesting because he's a, he's a scholar that's outside of the church. I grew up in the church and we're coming together with basically the same exact interpretations from two different completely angles and backgrounds. And I think he would, I think Bickerton would have liked that his story was told. I think it was his last wish. So you, the story has finally been told. Yeah, and uh, this was a wonderful book. I tore through this thing. I got to know so much about your church. And I thought, well, I have some more questions I need to ask him. So I got to get him on. Okay. And I'm so glad you came on. Um, I want to thank you so much. You've been a real blessing. And it's so cool that you came on, dude. Thanks, Steven. Appreciate it. Always enjoy talking to you. I enjoyed our coffee talk. Yes, that was great. Yeah, I got my my knockoff Aldi's uh, Red Bull getting me through this. This is the late night. Uh, this is the late night version of Mormon book reviews. Um, I just want to remind my audience to uh, like and subscribe and make sure you hit the notification bell to be reminded when a new episode's coming out. I'm going to provide a link to uh, purchase the Bickerton, this book, and also uh, I'm going to also link up my book review, the second book review I gave uh, for my channel as well at the end of this. So either way, everybody have yourself a great day and uh, we'll see you soon.